0: This podcast sponsored by Prime Super, a leading industry super fund specialising in the health and aged care sector. Go to primesuper.com.au to see what we can do for you. Hi, I'm Richard Garfield, Managing Editor at Aged Care Insight. While whistleblowing or dobbing in a manager or colleague in the workplace might seem at odds with Australian culture, that's the service a Melbourne-based company, YourCall, has been providing for a range of prominent businesses over the last 15 years. In the current climate of the Royal Commission, updated standards and continuing fallout from the Four Corners investigation into elder abuse, it's one that many aged care providers may find appealing. I caught up with General Manager Nathan Luca to find out how the service works and how it might apply in the aged care sector. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Nathan. Um, Can I start by uh, getting you to give us a quick example of how the the process works from initial report uh, through to resolution?
1: Yes, Richard, absolutely. It's definitely a good place to start. I think before the report even comes through the door, um, we can start at the beginning at at the organisation and where the process starts with the board and the executive leadership team. And generally, it's due to them wanting to elevate and strengthen its approach to employee reporting. And this may be in response to legislative, regulatory, or as we're seeing some Royal Commission requirements. It could be due to a recent occurrence um, or a situation of misconduct. It could be due to poor employee trust or engagement scores, uh, or just, I guess, the general sense of wanting to cultivate a speak up culture. So it starts at the top, I guess, is what we're saying, uh, which is one of the precursors to reports actually uh, being raised. And that's both internally or through an external pathway. And that's really important to understand. I'm no doubt something we'll work through um, through our, our chat. Um, in terms of when someone does decide to speak up, I guess at your call, we're here to help individuals speak up without fear. And, and when they do so, or when they report, To external service provider, um, it's important that they're treated with empathy, compassion, and confidentiality. And that's what we do when we take, we call that, we wrap that up as a whistleblower first approach. But the importance of that is to help the person feel as though they're speaking to the right person. You don't want them to feel from the get go that they're doing something that isn't right or they're going against. Uh, social norms or what's expected of them at the organisation. They're absolutely doing the right thing and upholding, I guess, their values and the culture of that organisation. At the point of receiving a report, uh, our role is to act as a conduit between the individual and the organisation from start to finish. It's important to help the individual retain their anonymity, handle evidence and supporting documentation uh, in line with that, and then offer support services when required. Support and protection is incredibly important to an individual, and that's been demonstrated recently in A.J. Brown and Griffith University's very detailed work called Whistling While They Work, and they they uncover the stress impacts, the productivity impacts, and the general well-being impacts that an individual experiences pre, post, and during making a report. And they can be mitigated and reduced through the uh, the proper um, uh, provision of support and protection, so that's a really important a really, really important part happy to circle back on that at a later date at a later time today. Uh, you can ask questions you you obviously provide updates on what will happen next, trying to provide the individual with situational awareness so I guess uh, discrete reporting as it's more commonly known as set outside but whistleblowing for the purpose of the conversation. It originally was sort of a note under the door, you know, approach. You sort of sent an anonymous letter or or, or made an anonymous report and you didn't really receive any feedback. You were a little bit unsure of what was being done. If you'd be tapped on the shoulder and be asked questions in front of everybody, it was quite a daunting and scary process. So helping the individual understand that something is going to be done about it who will be doing something about it, who their point of contact will be, and that the information identity, if they choose to remain anonymous, uh, will be absolutely kept confidential. If it's a person uh, with a disability or an elderly individual, uh, provisions need to be made and added service support needs is obviously required. So it's not a one-size-fits-all model. Um, and that also comes right down to the gender, right down to the gender of the person taking the report, uh, can be chosen uh, to the pathway, if uh, a support person is required, etc. Uh, from there, and generally when it's relied on an external pathway, things move incredibly quickly. So information is elevated to the appointed whistleblower officers, and when I say appointed, I mean at the organisation side. That's they're documented in the policy. They receive the information. Uh, At your call, we, of course, provide a 360-degree service. Uh, So these officers can be circumvented if they need to be, uh, if they're allegedly involved or if there's a conflict of interest. But basically, the information is received, the person's protected, and the organisation is notified within a matter of hours. And then from there, the organisation follows a range of steps. And they're generally documented in a accompanying accompanying whistleblower procedure uh, or in an investigation plan etc where they'll no doubt conduct a risk assessment they'll review the information and then run a discrete uh, discrete review to substantiate partly substantiate or unsubstantiate the allegations and it's really nice to frame this as an iceberg so generally an individual is providing a tip-off or some information around the tip of the iceberg. They might not have optics over the entire issue. and There also might be some unknown unknowns there where they're not actually sure of the other connected scenarios to what they're saying. It's really important that the officers at the organisation side are well-trained, they have support, like individuals like, like us, but also that they run a consistent and procedurally consistent investigation each time, even if the initial allegation is considered not to be whistleblowing by the black letter definition or seems to be a low-level matter as sort of things we hear sometimes from time Mm. to time, um, it's important to assess every one of them. Mm. Um, And then from there onwards, the uh, whistleblowing service, if, if you choose to have an external Pathway needs to remain impartial, so it's important they don't run the investigation for you or, or really provide any other services for you, so there's no conflict of interest. But it's then up to the organisation to act. Uh, and then lastly, importantly, uh, if um, in the unfortunate situation that victimisation is uh, is experienced, which we know through that same quoted research project earlier with Griffith University, it happens a, a heck of a lot. Um, both in terms of whistleblowing and general reporting. The Human Rights Commission did a recent workplace sexual harassment report where they found a very low number of people actually report sexual harassment. when they do, unfortunately, over 20% uh, are victimised, ostracised or ignored, labelled a troublemaker. So that's really important as well to focus on mitigating that threat. In terms of a resolution, that word is... um, Uh, sometimes a little bit different because um, each report needs to be assessed on its merits. So a resolution may be no further action if there is nothing further (laughs) to act on. But the individual's definitely well-informed. They have pathways to continue to provide information, answer questions, etc. throughout the process anonymously via us as we act as the conduit between the individual and the the organisation at all times. So we can help the, the individual uh, make decisions, inform them of what's happening. and If they're just not sure if something seems quite right, can let them know uh, uh, potentially that, that there are other circumstances at play that they're not aware of, et cetera. Mm. So it's quite, quite uh, varied, I guess, based on the scenario.
0: Mm. Okay. Um, in your experience, uh, are your existing clients taking up this service to uh, contain or mitigate problems before they become public or to present themselves as, um, I guess, ethical corporate citizens with nothing to hide? Or, or is it a bit of both?
1: Yeah. yeah, I think it's a great question. And it's a bit of both. Um, I think all organisations have the duty of care and want to ensure that their people feel safe, protected and willing to speak up. Uh, without fear, basically. Um, the service definitely helps leaders and organizations lead through ambiguity and shine a torch potentially on blind spots. You know, we call that, it's all quite common, you know, the known unknown or the unknown unknowns at an organization. Sometimes there's a disconnect between the leaders of the organization at the top and the individuals working throughout the hierarchy. And a whistleblowing service, especially one with an external pathway, helps people with varying preferences um, uh, in terms of the way they report and also helps uh, the leaders determine uh, and ensure that they're providing the ability for people to speak up before they speak out. And and that's demonstrated in a range of reports that people generally try to exhaust um, all available pathways at the, their disposal before speaking out, for example, to the media, taking legal action, etc., going to a, a regulator. Um, or they don't feel safe to do so, or they've done so and nothing's been done about it. So yes, um, although it can be confusing that we're external and independent service or whistleblowing service, you're right, it is part of an internal uh, uh, management process. It's still, I guess, broadening the perimeter of the organisation before it goes to the public. And we know that there are a range of impacts and there's a range of, uh, a range of studies. You know, The Medical Journal of Australia recently found that uh, one quarter to half of doctors and nurses have been bullied, discriminated against or harassed at work. Uh, we know that. That's, that's fact. We know the complaints in aged care are increasing uh, at a consistent rate based on the aged care complaints annual report. So we know the reports are occurring, uh, sorry, the misconduct's occurring, uh, and I guess this is one way uh, to, to attempt to detect, but also prevent and deter. Uh, putting something in place like this can actually uh, deter individuals from misbehaving, as long as it's well communicated, trained, etc. And the American Psychology Association has done a lot of work around this, demonstrating uh, how a strong commitment, like an externally-managed whistleblowing service and a range of other um, items can increase productivity, motivationness, motivation and willingness to report. Hmm.
0: Um, it, did you have much interest from aged care providers prior to the recent focus brought about by, for example, Four Corners, the announcement of the Royal Commission and the new Aged Care Quality Standards? And, and in, in addition to that, have um, since that, have, have many come forward?
1: Absolutely. It's a great question, and we we value uh, and welcome uh, the Royal Commission, um, as, as I know many do in the industry. Um, no doubt there will be some uh, sad stories, but also growth, uh, as there is from most Royal Commissions. And we, and we actually absolutely did have an interest in aged care and health care in general. Uh, health care uh, is... Sort of middle of the rung in terms of sector and their preparedness for reporting and assessments. However, they uh, a lot of statistics around misbehavior in terms of harassment and bullying, and those stats have been around well before uh, you, you said the media coverage, etc. So we, we, we have. We've also been tracking, obviously, the reports that I referred to earlier in the Aged Care Complaints Commissioner and their annual report, which has been increasing. And also we have an understanding around the problems that occur at organisations with you know, people. People, when they're, when they're together, especially when there are people in need, et cetera, and they're geographically dispersed from the head office, et cetera, they tend to cause issues and, and increase the risk. And this is both on the harassment side, on the service quality side, and also on the fraud side. The certified fraud examiners have released a report in 2018 you know, estimating around 5% of annual revenue is lost to fraud. And that whistleblowing or tip-offs are the highest detection method I think it's up around forty six percent of frauds are detected via tip and those those organizations that do have a, a hotline so to speak or an external whistleblowing service experience frauds that are fifty percent smaller so this uh, this these types of statistics are cross sector uh, so uh, I guess in the short answer is yes yes we did have an interest uh, beforehand uh,
0: the I mean, it's arguable that the, the concept of whistleblowing or, or dobbing someone in is um, at odds with traditional Australian values. Um, have, you, have your clients found this to be much of a barrier to employees speaking up?
1: Yeah, it's that, something we've we heard uh, quite a lot. I mean, we've been around for over 14 years. And our, I guess our, our comment on that now is we feel as though that isn't so much the case these days. Uh, especially in surveys and longitudinal studies that we're running at organisations that are clients of ours, speaking with individuals, that dobbing culture isn't uh, as prevalent as, as it once was. And that's with a generational change, one. Two, I think moving uh, from speaking up the language, from moving from speaking up to discrete reporting, and then um, and one big part of our service is focusing on the development of the program. Um, and the quality of the program. And that sometimes involves creating separate brands. Uh, many of our organisations will just call it, you know, uh, company safe, we'll just call it that for now. That's their kind of branding for their, for their, their, their behaviour approach. And under that, we're a spoke of the wheel. You know, we're one way of that they uphold that. And one is in bystanding, bystander training and uh, support services, how to detect and define misconduct. So these uh, broad and thorough... Uh, approaches to training communication breaking down the barriers uh, is helping people and motivating them to speak up uh, when in doubt or when when they're not feeling safe so we feel as though now when now that it's better connected to upholding the organisation's values and general approach we think that's a great thing also i think the overarching quality and and social sort of culture we believe in australia is uh, looking out for your fellow fellow colleague for your fellow person to you know by your neighbour, you generally want to do the right thing by someone else, and we feel the service and in general uh, trying assisting each other to stamp our misconduct actually is, is, is a better fit with the Australian culture and values.
0: Have your um, existing clients um, experienced positive changes in their company culture as a result of using your service? and Can you provide uh, perhaps an example?
1: Yeah, definitely. What's interesting? And this has been supported in a range of external studies, as I mentioned earlier. The APA in America, "Whistling While They Work," and a range of others. We know that there's underreporting occurring. So, um, sadly, in you know, sexual, assass- uh, sex- sexual harassment, uh, this year by the Human Rights Commission, in the last five years, 39% of women and 26% of men have experienced sexual harassment at work. You know, 40% of those incidents were witnessed by bystanders where, and, and about you know, over 70% of those bystanders didn't intervene, didn't know how to and chose not to, to move forward. So it's really low levels of reporting, low levels of bystander intervention. And there were a high number of individuals not saying anything, which causes new victims, the offender re-offends, the person may leave the organisation, and then it creates a ripple effect at home. All of this gets captured in increased reliance on the EAP service of the organisation, potentially, and other support mechanisms. Two, we see this result in low employee engagement scores. Three, we see this contribute to low trust scores at the organisation or in its leaders. So understanding that, um, and that can also you know, manifest in other ways, like higher stress claims, high absentees, et cetera, but without getting into the weeds too much, understanding that landscape of measurement and the indicators at the organisation, we can start assessing the pre-state of the organisation before a whistleblowing programme is introduced and then how that evolves over time. Now, anything culture-related, change management-related has has been well documented documented, takes a long time. So it's important that it is maintained, thoroughly embedded within the culture and committed to by the organisation, above and beyond the individuals at that organisation at the time. So it needs to be bigger than the CEO, it needs to be bigger than the HR manager. It's it's a permanent fixture of the organisation. So from that, we see those markers that I mentioned, they increase over time, potentially, and it depends on the organisation. So retail shrinkage, potentially, um, may drop. Absentees may drop. Trust and the engagement scores may increase. But also it comes down and they're not related to the types of reports you're receiving. It then comes down to the types of reports you receive. So we received a report recently at a retail uh, client, uh, uh, a bit of uh, timesheet manipulation. And over the last decade, that has caused significant loss of a financial nature. Um, And that was quite a complex matter. Within that, there were 16 other breaches, and that relates back to the iceberg consideration I mentioned uh, that occurred so 16 breaches one major incidence of uh, fraud that's at one location there's over 150 locations in the portfolio of this client they ran a quick compliance and test and found at least seven potential threat areas at other locations uh, and uh, went on to substantiate a a range of other issues so what I'm getting at is it was all interlinked. The tip-off was about issue one. They didn't have full optics, as I mentioned, but then an entire snowball effect occurred where the organisation was illuminated with a range of procedural deficiencies. They then plugged those holes and took a continuous learning, I guess, approach where they embedded that into the future and ranged with a range of innovations, different types of training, uh, and making people aware as bystanders of better reporting. That's a lot of work. Uh, it's a, a large finding, uh, and, but it requires a, a, a thorough approach. You, it, writing a policy and putting it in place on the internet isn't good enough and it's going to yield poor results. So everything we're talking about today is demonstrating and you know, aligning with the employee life cycle and actively managing the whistleblowing process. That's when the best results are received, both as a deterrent and as in re- received reports.
0: Okay, and uh, just to finish up, are there any particular issues or, or challenges in the aged care sector that um, that you feel your service is particularly adept at solving? Absolutely.
1: I think one is jumping outside of the organisation's hierarchy. So at organisations like an aged care provider, there are key of blockers. And that might be the facility manager. I'm sure they're called different things. Uh, it could be the the person on, on rounds leading that shift. It could be you could be a contractor in the kitchen and not exactly know who to report to. And maybe your organization doesn't have the jurisdiction or the reporting pathway. So I guess what it does in summary is get a report in a very short time frame outside of the hierarchy into the hands of senior executives who have a role and responsibilities to act in accordance with their, their policies and procedures. Um, if they have an external service like your call, they're held to account. You know, they can't not act, you can't delete reports, you, you have an obligation to act as especially. So that's that's one layer of, uh, I guess, oversight and governance there. But it helps connect individuals of varying stakeholder groups at various locations to make reports of wrongdoing for the individuals at the, the organisation who or are in charge to substantiate or, or not unsubstantiate. That's that's one thing it does well um, and we see that a lot in aged care, we're out on site um, and there's OH&S breaches, there's compliance checks, a whole range of things that come through the service and I guess having a really broad service may lends itself to a broad type of reporting. Uh, second, it extends to the families of residents. Customers, the name that you choose to you choose for the beneficiaries of your service, it allows individuals who feel as though something's not quite right to bypass the individuals they have first contact with at the at the center, the aged care center or facility, to again follow that pathway. Now, not all of our clients have yet opened up our service to residents. Many have. That changes the dynamic of how you can. Communicate, it changes the dynamic of dynamic of the policy and procedure you need to put in place to handle that stakeholder group. So, there are a range of other uh, items to consider there, we won't go into today. But it helps connect and involve the individuals uh, who are the beneficiaries of the service into the reporting process. And not to mention, it demonstrates strong positive commitment by the leaders of the organisation and, and the organisation as a whole that they're committed to the personal safety. Of their loved ones.
0: Okay, uh, well, thank you very much for your time today, Nathan.
1: Richard, thanks so much. It was an absolute privilege to to chat on the podcast, and we really uh, thank you for making the time. Thank you.